Coming up next, the novel that William Faulkner called A Tour de Force, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. This is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host here for another episode of The Booking, the book show where we talk about books. And I'm joined by my old chum, Brandon Chasteen. Hey, chum is also food for sharks. <laughs> so, okay. I'd throw that out there. Glad we established that. <laughs> Jaws was a shark. Yes, he was. All right. Are we which just doing word associations now? <laughs> which is a movie based on the Peter Benchley novel. Benchley includes the word benches. Benches are things that you sit on. Faulkner liked to sit on benches and smoke his pipes. Which brings us to the subject of William Faulkner. <laughs> Very well done. <laughs> In the most straightforward fashion. We should say uh, our third compatriot, the third little member of our triumvirate, is... Sadly, MIA today. Yep. Missing in action, just like Chuck Norris was in that great classic of the cinema, Missing in Action. Yep. I believe it was called. Empty chair over there, just like, um, what's his name? (laughs) Tiny Tim. Yeah, just like Tiny Tim's crutch. (laughs) Yep, there's an empty chair. Jake's crutch is, in fact, sitting in that chair. No, Jake's not here. He's actually, Jake, as we've mentioned before, is the pastor that's a master of reading. You will notice in that phrase, the word pastor, which means he has certain pastoral duties, which he is, in fact, attending to right now, which is why he cannot join us. He may be joining us a little bit later for this discussion. Isn't that right, Brandon? That is correct. He may be. We don't know. We don't know. The vicissitudes of life. (sighs) It'll be a harrowing odyssey, just like the odyssey that the Bundrens family, the who? The Bundrens. The Bundren family (laughs) underwent, which we are now about to discuss. So, Brandon, let's, uh, let's, 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 uh, let's jump right in, eh? Let's do it. I think uh, you're going to have to pull out the old pistols. You haven't done this in a little while. That's right. Had to get them back from Steven. Were they, were they in good condition? A little rusty. A little rusty? Yeah. What about you? Are I'm you a little, a little rusty? rusty? Okay. Well, joints are creaking, kind of like the Tin Man. <laughs> Solid gold <laughs> that we're recording so far. <laughs> There's a literary illusion for you. Oh, yeah. Um, right there. <laughs> I should just... There we go. That's much better. Um, this is what people have come to know and love. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, Brandon, uh, why don't you pull out the old pistols? Give us a hearty and hail, both hearty and hail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to require it to be both hearty and hail, yeehaw, uh, and uh, give us the, some the contextual text in the part of the show where you are from Texas. I am. And you... Give us the context of the book that we're about to read. I do. Yeehaw! Is that hardy enough? It was hardy. It was... Uh, Not hail. I wanted, we could turn up the hail level just a little bit. Yeehaw! All right, let's hear about As I Lay Dying. Make with the context. Where should we start, Nathan? Let's start with William Faulkner, Brandon. Let's start with William Faulkner. He was born William Faulkner. <laughs> I thought that sentence was just going to end with he was. <laughs> he was and he wasn't, which is a very Faulkner-esque way to describe his life. So we could try and do it with some subconscious stream of consciousness interiority. <laughs> Let's try. <laughs> I was born 1897. My pa and my ma. 
that doesn't work at all. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. Oh, anyways, he was born into a, from what I could tell, relatively wealthy railroad family. His grandfather had various businesses. So he wasn't poor, which is, I find interesting because most of his subjects are very poor. I mean, he wrote about the these families, the downtrodden of the South, and that definitely was not his background. His grandfather, as I said, he owned, they owned a railroad company, but they also owned other businesses. And I know that his father wanted to take over his grandfather's train railroad company, train railroad company, <laughs> his train railroad, his company. train railroad company, but wasn't allowed to. So his grandfather instead sold it for like $75,000. And then his dad just went and ran, wanted to move to Texas. I, that, I just like that fact because I'm from Texas. He wanted to move to Texas, but instead he ended up running some businesses in Oxford, Mississippi in the county of Lafayette, which is where they settled and which is where a lot of young Faulkner's imagination was shaped. There's a nice use of the passive voice. <laughs> Got shapened. <laughs> and where his fictional county, Yaknapatalfa. Yaknapatalfa? Yaknapatalfa. Was based on this Lafayette County. I think I lost that sentence. <laughs> his imagination was shaped. By his mother and by his grandmother and also by his... How would you say it? African-American maid who raised him, basically. And so his mother would, she was very, she loved to read and his grandmother loved to read and they were well-educated people. And so he was introduced to literature through his mom, to Dickens, to the Grimm's fairy tales, such as that. But also then through his grandfather, he was introduced to stories about his great-grandfather, I believed, who he was named after. And this great-grandfather was a Civil War hero. And he sort of loomed over the family history in a way that a lot of the Southern history loomed over the South at the time. If you read Fa if you read a lot of Faulkner's novels like Absalom, Absalom, or Light in August, or any of the stories that have to do with the Compton family, this you see Faulkner's history sort of intertwined with their history. These looming figures, and you see it also in Marilyn Robinson's book. So she's kind of ripping off Faulkner in this sense, of how the past relates to the present and how you have these, um, how, how, the fan, how your family is shaped by its genealogy and its history, which is a very Southern concern, which we'll talk about when we get more broader and just general with our discussion of the South, but to stay committed to Faulkner. He was a relatively good student as a young boy, but then kind of fell off. I, I don't know why. I find it interesting, but he just sort of lost interest in school. But he did especially when he got to the university, take, uh, become interested in writing. And so he wrote poetry, and he wrote some short stories, and he tried to get published, but he never really found success until, what, the late 20s, when he was born in, 30, in 97, so it was around our age, actually, which is encouraging for us, that he finally found his uh, first success with, with Soldier's Pay. Large part, well, he found some other mentors in high school and also in college, but his first big breakthrough was becoming friends with Sherwood Anderson, who's famous for riding Winesburg, Ohio. Sherwood Anderson ch championed him, got him into some of these publication houses where his novels were able to at least get published he didn't quite he didn't really find fame until later in life so he found a little bit of commercial success at least enough to buy his family home which is still there to this day around the same time he married a girl that he thought he would marry he as a child but then she ended up marrying a lawyer because her family wanted her to marry somebody who was better for her situation and then they ended up having a falling out they got divorced and so she married Faulkner and they stayed married until Faulkner's death even though Faulkner was a serial adulterer and as we've found, most of these novelists have been serial adulterers. Yeah. 
Like Steinbeck was. Steinbeck, was. Hemingway, certainly. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, chew on that, listener. Yes. Um, <laughs> his earlier novels weren't quite as experimental. And then when, I believe it was Flags in the Dust, which was, re- no, not Flags in the Dust. It was the novel that got renamed to Sartoris. But a lot of public uh, publishers rejected it. And this really shaped his philosophy of writing to where he became just wholeheartedly committed to the independence of the writer and his craft. A lot like Joyce, we'll see, just doggedly assured that he, his voice was the voice that needed to come through in his novels. And so the first place we see that is in The Sound and the Fury, which started out as three short stories he was writing and then he thought should actually be a novel. I think um, As I Lay Dying is somewhat unique in his oeuvre because it, it was a very planned, concise work that he went about with a, with a very detailed outline. A lot of his other stories, it seems, grew and changed, and he sort of found them intuitively. But As I Lay Dying is maybe his only novel. I'm just saying that off the top of my head. That's, that's just perfectly shaped and uh, planned and structured in a very defined way. I mean, he said he outlined it, you know, he, he knew exactly what the last sentence was going to be, all that sort of thing, which I, I don't believe was typical of him. Tell me if no, I'm it wrong. wasn't typical of all of his novels. Some of his novels, he would plan out very meticulously. I know a fable he did, but like The Sound of the Fury, just like you said, sort of grew more organically. And so As I Lay Dying is different in that sense. As I Lay Dying was in this period where he was beginning to experiment, and he was heavily influenced by writers he had been introduced to by some of these mentors I mentioned, especially James Joyce. And we've talked about modernism before. What was unique about James Joyce and Virginia Woolf and some of these other modernists who were writing at the time was they were beginning to pioneer a new form of narrative called stream of consciousness. And stream of consciousness, instead of being based on a third-person objective narrator, was interiority, complete interiority of the characters. And so what they were thinking was what you would read on the page. And so you get the things that come along with that. You get... And... Good grief. Wow. just started raining really hard. It is raining. If you, if you can hear that, listener, it's raining outside. Yeah. Forgive us. And so, I mean, this isn't completely new. I know that... um, We talked about how in certain set pieces from the novel, Tolstoy was moving that direction, at least, in Anna Karenina. And um, so it's not necessarily completely new, but in the way that they took it and in the sort of coldness to it, just complete interiority that it had in the sense that they weren't even concerned about whether or not you could follow the narrative as much as they were about the characters telling you the story. What's unique about it is, is that it's not trying to tell a story to you instead of trying to present these characters and as they are actually perceiving the world at the moment they're perceiving the world. And so it's like you're following along and seeing their thoughts as they happen. Your thoughts aren't always um, linear and progress. You know, they don't progress from one to the other very fluidly or are very um, what, logically. Logically. Instead, there's a sort of a fluidness to it. And so they tried to they would try to capture this with their stream of consciousness. And so you see this with Faulkner. But one of the differences with Faulkner is he would try to mix that with sort of a very austere poetry. And so these redneck characters that he would be telling these stories about are these backwoods characters would suddenly have a sort of grandeur and poetry to their thinking and use words in their inner thoughts that they wouldn't necessarily be able to use if they were speaking out loud because they wouldn't know. One of the reasons he's doing he did this was simply because that's the style he liked to write in. 
And as I said, he was trying to find this independence and this uniqueness in the style that was his own, the doggedness of the author. He has this one quote, I can't quite remember what he's, the exact words of it. The implication or the gist of it is that the author shouldn't look to other authors. You're not trying to beat other authors. You're always only trying to beat yourself. That's right. That's the quote. Thank you. Something like that. Yeah. You know, there's this sense that the author is, because of their genius, knows exactly what they're doing and they don't owe they're they're not indebted to any other author um there is that sense that he's just creating a style that is his own it's this weird mix of um high poet shakespearean poetry almost with the low language of the south at the time and the inner thoughts as he's trying to capture them of these people and so it's it's definitely a style that's unique and set apart and it's, it's its own thing um for, for whatever else you might want to say about mm-hmm. it and so you see it pretty clearly in as they lay dying as he was creating this kind of this experimental new style that he would write in he was also creating this county Yachnapatalfa, which is where most of his novels are set and which is based on where he grew up, Lafayette County in Mississippi. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is actually the first novel to be set there. Either that or Sound and the Fury. Yeah, I could be crazy. Sorry. I think you might be right, though. I think I am, but... The rain's making me think my roof's probably leaking. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's like we're on the ocean. Right. Anyway, so... That was a little interior monologue from Brandon right there. (laughs) My roof must be leaking. It's like we're on the ocean. The vicissitudes of roofs and oceans. Oceans and roofs. Faulkner liked his repetition, too. (laughs) But uh, go ahead. And we're back. And right. So he based Yachnapatalfa on this county where he grew up, and he gives it a history. He gives it these families that have their own histories within and genealogies in this county and their interrelations. So I've already mentioned some of them. You have the Comptons, you have the Sutpins, you have the Bundrens. And then you'll have these characters appearing in each other's novels. I think Darrell is actually a character in another novel that Faulkner wrote. I can't yes. remember which one it I'm is. I'm not sure, but he is. And anyway, so this is the craft that he developed. And at first it did well for him, but then he had some financial troubles. And so he actually was a Hollywood playwright for a while. Yeah, if you've um, ever wrote, seen, if anybody's ever seen the movie Barton Fink, there's a character based on him. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 there's there's this old, drunk, ridiculous, self-hating uh, Southern novelist played by John Mahoney, who played uh, Fraser's dad, and he's very much a a Faulkner esque figure in that in that story that Barton Barton meets as a young screenwriter in Hollywood at the time. So he went to Hollywood and he wrote for a while. Have you ever seen The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart? Yes. I actually think that is, a, William Faulkner was at least a co-screenwriter of that. Uh, they apparently didn't keep a word of what he did. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Faulkner often gets the credit for that one. I know this because I'm a Raymond Chandler fanatic, and Raymond Chandler, of course, wrote the novel that that's based on. Uh, Faulkner often gets the credit because it was him. He's listed as a co-writer with a woman. So, of course, everybody assumes that Faulkner came up with all the the manly sort of jibes and Humphrey Bogart quips and everything. But actually, apparently, it was mostly, I forget what her name was, but this lady screenwriter is, is what did it. And, huh. actually, and actually, a lot of that movie is... Uh, just pure Chandler as well. So, uh, well, there you go. There's some trivia for you, folks. There you go, Faulkner. Yeah, the Hollywood system in those days really sucked up a lot of talent from New York and from different places, and just sucked it into the machine. Gave people a lot of money, but didn't give them. There was no auteur theory in Hollywood at the time. It was just a corporate 
machine that you had your Warner brothers and they owned things. I'm sorry. I just happen to know about this. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting. So a lot of great playwrights and uh, great writers from that era ended up working in Hollywood, but you can, you'd be hard pressed to name a great movie that was written by one of them because the writers simply weren't given any power, any authority, any real, what's the word? Uh, they just weren't able to take initiative to actually use their creative gift. They, they would hire these really fantastic people like Faulkner, like Chandler, um, like many, many, many uh, great playwrights from the time, you know, people like that. And then they, they, they wouldn't actually give them the freedom to really practice their craft in, in Hollywood. So it was kind of a lot of people made a lot of money and, and wasted a lot of years of their lives uh, not really producing anything all that great, Faulkner being one of them. Yeah. And so that's... Uh... It's an interesting oddity of the period. And so Faulkner was wrapped up into that machinery for probably 10 years. A while, yeah. And then he started to find more success. He was very well respected among the elites. We've talked about how in this period with modernism, you began to see a separation between high and and low culture um, pretty starkly. And high culture went more towards the academy with T.S. Eliot and with James Joyce and with these sort of hard-to-read and hard-to-understand inscrutable books and art forms. With I mean, you, and you saw it also with other art forms, too, with art. You saw it with cubism and with music, with the whole atonal system that was beginning to emerge. And so eventually you get into stuff that just seems like it's suited for a museum and for people wearing turtlenecks and seeming awfully proud of themselves. And Faulkner's novels fit nicely into this culture, so much so that by 1949, he was respected enough that he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, which... I think he's the only person from Mississippi to have ever won a Nobel Prize for literature. Really? So, though, I mean, how many Americans have won the Nobel Prize for literature? Right. <laughs> so, it's, it's probably not that many. <laughs> so, there could be states that don't have one. Do we have one? Does Indiana? I bet Indiana doesn't. I bet Texas doesn't either. If Jake was here, he'd look it up for us. But Jake's not here. There's an empty chair of not looking upishness yeah. over there. Where were we? Uh, Faulkner. He became oh, his Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. He became. I think it gained a more popular success from anything from a portable. Like the portable Faulkner was a, was released at some point in the late 40s, early 50s, and it had great selections from his work. And that's some of the most success he just had with the general public more so than any of the novels that we sort of associate with him at this point you know and then he was a mildly successful at least especially with the academics and the elite artists until his death he died of a thrombosis caused by falling off a horse (laughs) i don't know why that's funny (laughs) yeah at the young age of 62 i think Mm -hmm. is when he died if you're a high school student, you've probably read A Rose for Emily. That's his famous little short yeah, or barn grotesque burning. story. Yeah, Barn Burning. Those would be the two. If you're in college, you've probably either read Sound and the Fury or As I Lay Dying. Those are commonly what people read. Light in August is also fairly common. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's Faulkner. And so he wrote As I Lay Dying. And just to give a general, you want me to give a general overview of the book? Well, um, I have a few other questions about what, what, what has his influence been in terms of, can you talk about where writing about the South was before Faulkner and where it went after him because yeah, he, he definitely there. belongs to that tradition. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just, you, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about own. it. Yeah. Let's start with the civil war. So I love Southern literature. This is like one of my things. So have at it. I adore, I, I, I really love this. We're going to have ourselves a regular uh, curtillion. Of, yeah. A good old, uh, Southern hoedown. Hoedown. Oh, good grief. <laughs> Maybe I don't love the South that much. Um, so after the Civil War, the South was beaten. Devastated. If you didn't know, 
the South was beaten. They lost. It was devastated. And they had the South before the war. You've probably seen in the movies, you had these plantations and you had the whites and you had the blacks and you had poor farmers. But this idea of gentility was very prominent in the South, especially with the wealthy classes. And then you had the poor the what you would call a redneck today but still very sort of tribal in their sensibilities with their uh, mastheads and their histories and their rootedness to place and their love of land and their culture and their history if you've ever seen gone with the wind that's like the you know the civilization the antebellum southern civilization is now gone with the wind yeah but it's very important to realize that that sort of civilization was tied to a very elite upper class sort of echelon of the south and then you you would have your middle class um, tradesmen and other and farmers who would in this book would be more along the lines of um, Cora. Yeah, uh, the and tolls. Then, yeah, the tolls. And then you would have your bundrens. So your bundrens would have their connection to their poverty, but also, and you see this in a lot of Faulkner's writings, they would be very much rooted in family and in their connection to family and to place, very mirrored and echoed in the way that the plantation owners would as well. And so you see these and you see both dynamics in Faulkner's novels. You see it with like a family like the Sutpins who were a wealthy plantation holding family who then had, they'd have a downfall and how that haunt, haunts them for the rest of the book. Anyway, so you have that sort of economic situation with family and with plan, with plantation owner and with the lower class. And that all sort of crumbles after the Civil War, but it doesn't completely crumble. You still have the memory of it, and you still have the longing for it. And then you have the problem of the slaves, the freed slaves, the, the blacks. Oh, you mean the black slaves? The black slaves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh PC is so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but you have the whole South is sort of haunted by the loss because um, they feel like their whole society and culture was taken from them by the North with the loss of this war. And so you see a lot of this hauntedness and this feeling of inevitability and this feeling of doom and this feeling of judgment that settled over the South. Uh, Flannery O'Connor talks a lot about it. Mm -hmm. But this is something that was predominant at the time. The South was very proud of their culture, but towards the end of the 1800s, you had this one guy named H.L. Minken who wrote The Sahara of the Beaux-Arts, where he made fun of the South, and he said it was probably the most intellectually empty part of America. And this offended a lot of the southerners at the time but also encouraged some of the young writers who were seeing issues with the south to start writing until minkin kept going and he started also attacking what they valued which was the sort of agrarianism the anti-industrialism the tight-knit genealogy and ancestry and commitment to family and conservatism of the south minkin was just like an acid-tongued critic of everyone but yeah he was like that christopher hitchens of his day or but something especially like that. the south and he just yeah. hated the south and so while he had legitimate things to say and hate about the south about their blindness to their own racism and their intellectual backwardness in a lot of ways it ended up offending a, a small group of writers in the early 1900s who would start a, what's known as the southern renaissance in literature and the guy who spearheaded it was john crow ransom and this was at vanderbilt university and so they started a little group of writers some call call they're sometimes known as the fugitives they're also sometimes known as the southern agrarians uh around na- 1930 they wrote a treatise where they defended southern agrarian life 
because they hated industrialism. And they saw the North as sort of this industrial complex that was going to come down and destroy the rural, just simple agrarianism of the South. And so even though they agreed with Mencken to the extent that a lot of the religiousness of the South, and we'll get there in just a minute, and a lot of the backwardness of the racial tensions and all that was to be hated about the South. They also thought that there were good, valuable things to Southern life, as opposed especially to Northern life, that they started to defend. And so you had John Crow Ransom, they, they, and they all met at Vanderbilt University. Another famous member was uh, Robert Penn Warren, mm-hmm. who wrote All the Presidents, not All the Presidents, but All the All the Kingsmen. All the the President's Men is that movie. (laughs) Um, So they started this movement. It was called the Southern Renaissance, and a lot of great literature came out of it. And it was also closely tied to a a conservative movement and criticism called the New Criticism. And what the New Criticism postulated— was that the work of art should stand on its own and that you didn't need to consider all these other outside influences on it, but you just considered the work of art as itself. They were heavily influenced by T.S. Eliot and his ideas of the objective correlative and stuff like that. Go look it up if you don't know what I'm talking about. But the, uh, the point being was that there was this sort of renaissance, like I said, it's called the Southern Renaissance for a reason of literature and just vitality coming out of the South. And so you had a lot of great writers, Catherine Ann Porter, uh, Eudora Welty, Robert Penn Warren, Alan Tate, the list goes on. All these fantastic writers and all of them worth reading. This was right around the time that Faulkner would have started producing his novels. Faulkner didn't really fit with his Southern Renaissance. He was kind of his own weird character. And in fact, a writer who was directly influenced by the Southern Southern Renaissance, Flannery O'Connor, talked about Faulkner being the locomotive that how could you even think about hitching your horses to the wagon when the locomotive was coming down the tracks right. or something like that? And so he was just this force. And so you just have this great genius coming out. And whatever you think of him, I mean, that kind of is who he is as this figurehead in Southern literature and where he fit in with this renaissance that was happening. Yeah, so that kind of tells you where he is as far as literary history with the South goes. He fits in with the Southern literature in particular. We've kind of touched on where he fits in then also. So it's a, it's a really interesting time of literary history because... Because it's right after World War I, a lot of people, and we've talked in great length about this before, but right after World War I, you get a lot of these young men who fought in the war, they just become disillusioned. Mm-hmm. And so this Vanderbilt movement happened right in, in the 1920s. Right in the 1920s and 1922, you have Ulysses gets written. You have Mrs. Dalloway is written. Uh, the Wasteland is also. So literature is just, it's changing. Faulkner kind of fits in between. He's both a Southern Renaissance man, but he's also this modernist and has similarities like we've already talked about with James Joyce and with Virginia Woolf. And he really is just kind of his own figure in this period. So he's like in between. But like a lot of these figures that are just marching to their own drum, I guess is the best way to say it. He has an amazing influence on literary history and especially American literature. You would not have, I, I don't think you'd have Marilyn Robinson, for example, without Faulkner. Almost certainly not, yeah. When not have Cormac McCarthy. As much as I love Cormac McCarthy, you would not have Cormac McCarthy without Faulkner, just because he's the first that sort of brought this weird biblical overtone and sort of high language and married it with this lower poor poverty um speak I don't yeah know. it's like you giving, know what i'm trying to say it's giving like shakespearean grandeur to 
the one that the people that Shakespeare would have written as the fools or something like, yeah, I don't know. I don't even, I don't know how to say it. No, that's exactly right. It's it's marrying the grandeur of traditional like Greek tragedy with the low, the common, the vulgar. Yeah. So as whatever we decide about him, and I'm not certain we're going to decide that we like him, his influence on American literature is the greatest of any writer in the 1920s. Hmm. His influence is right up there with James Joyce. James Joyce is the reason the short story is the way the short story is. So, I mean, a lot of our listeners probably really love Flannery O'Connor. I like Flannery O'Connor. I think she's amazing. She would not have existed without Faulkner and James Joyce. Yeah. And we'll talk about James Joyce. And after we get done talking about him, you'll understand why. She would not have been able to, she did not have the genius to do what she did without these men. Yeah, that's coming this uh, December, dear listener, for we'll be reading uh, The Dubliners. I I will throw in there Faulkner's uh, point of view on his contemporaries. He was asked by the University of Mississippi where he thought he ranked. He said he would put Thomas Wolfe from that era. We haven't talked a lot a lot about, but he's another interesting guy. He said he would put Thomas Wolfe would be number one. Number two would be William Faulkner. So he placed himself second. Number three, Dos Passos. And then uh, number four, he said Ernest Hemingway, but he famously in that interview said uh, Hemingway is number four. Like Hemingway's kind of lame. He said he has no courage. He's never crawled out on a limb and he has never been known to use a word that might cause the reader to check with a dictionary to see if it is properly used. So that was what Faulkner said about Hemingway. Um, and then about our, our buddy Steinbeck, he said, at one time I had great hopes for him. Now I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, in, if you think about what Faulkner was doing versus what Steinbeck was doing, and we've had discussions about this already, but Faulkner was more experimental in tone and more severe with his style, like Hemingway was, and which places them at opposition to Steinbeck, who pretty much just seems like he's raw and unedited. He's a storyteller. Yeah. yeah, you get what you get with Steinbeck. With Faulkner and with Hemingway, you get a more finely tuned instrument. Yeah. <laughs> no, they both, uh, him and Hemingway are similar in that they both, they're both all about the craft and crafting, but uh, they did have this feud. I should, I should, I should give Hemingway his due and say his comeback because it got supposedly, according to a memoir by some guy named Hotchner, a uh, friend of Hemingway's, it did get back to Hemingway what uh, Faulkner had said about he's never been used, to, known to use a word that might cause the reader to check with the dictionary to see if it is properly used. Hemingway famously said, poor Faulkner, does he really think big emotions come from big words? He thinks I don't know the $10 words. I know them all right, but there are older and simpler and better words than those are the ones I use. So that was Heming. That was, that was Heming. That was, there's a feud between two different people that we've read. If you wanted to know some of famous literary sniping. Yeah. And it's, you, you can definitely see it within their styles. Hemingway was, is clean. He's precise. And Faulkner is more florid, but you definitely see what you see with them is they're crafting very carefully with language in a way that we'll see with James Joyce as well. Right. If and Hemingway so, uses simple words, it, you, do you believe him when he says it's because he's considered and rejected the complicated $20 words? And if Faulkner uses complicated $20 words, it's because he's considered and carefully rejected the clean, simple style of Hemingway. Yeah. And there's a quote by Faulkner, I think is really telling about who he was as an artist. He says, I'm a failed poet. Maybe every novelist wants to write poetry first, finds he can't, and then tries the short story, which is the most demanding form after poetry. And failing at that, only then does he take up novel writing. I think that's really telling to Faulkner, because what you see, and I think the best defense of his novels, and what he's trying to do, is he's not just telling a story, he's also trying to 
play with language and create with language and paint with language. And he's, he's trying to be a poet in his novels. And so it's like Marilyn Robbins. He's, he's demanding, he asks that you slow down and you have to read every word and the cadences and the rhythms that are there. And that is probably, he does have some beautiful things that he says. I mean, we'll get into it, I guess. Yeah. So that's where he fits in with literary history at the time. If the reader really wants to know more about literary history at the time, go back and listen to our Steinbeck episodes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Stein. Oh shoot. Let's see here. Um, where have we talked and discussed about, I mean, I know that we talked, Oh, Hemingway episode. Yeah. Go back and listen to our Steinbeck and Hemingway. Yeah. If you want to know about just the culture of writing and what, whatever, what, yeah. what, and the culture in general at that time, those are good episodes to listen We've to. We've gone into great detail in those episodes. Mm-hmm. It's really um, important to just take a step back again and talk then. So we've talked about Southern literature. It's also good to know about Southern culture. They also, the South was a very religious place, more religious than the North. There was this conflict that happened, and you see it a lot in the Southern literature, between them th- seeing themselves as doomed like it's God's judgment on them versus they're just trying to make sense of what happened after the civil war. So either it's God's judgment on them or it's, they're sort of like Babylon and waiting. Mm -hmm. They've been put in, they've been exiled. I was just thinking it it always reminds me of the later parts of the old Testament with the prophets and some of that stuff, just the, the feeling of malaise of clinging on to some sort of dignity, you know, while your culture crumbles around you while you may be the last honorable person left while everything has gone to seed and is the things that you love and that you cling on to are being destroyed being torn and but you're trying to maintain some nobility some dignity within that and so almost every southern writer deals with this faulkner that's basically what he writes about and so when you read a novel like absalom absalom um he's dealing with a plantation family that has this dark, weird secret to it that then collapses and the father dies and the family falls apart. And then there's just the mansion that's still there and this thing that's still living inside of it that you don't know what it is until the end. Then not, on, then not only that, then also the relationship between white and black. And so Faulkner deals a lot with racial purity. Right. <laughs> he looked at me funny, but he does. So a, a big plot twist in a lot of his novels is the fact that someone is a, an eighth black or something, and he's been trying to hide it his whole life. So well, that's one of the big twists in Absalom Absalom is that one of them's an octomaroon. Spoiler. Yeah, sorry. It's, so he's dealing with the racial tensions that are there, the relationship between religion and judgment, and all the complexities of Southern life trying to make sense of itself after its defeat in the Civil War, and the way that the South, being seeing symbolic importance in everything, tried to make sense of it either as, like I said, judgment or exile or this sort of dirtiness from the blacks no longer being slaves. And then also... With these families, you also then get the weirdness and tensions that come about with fathers and the collapse of fathers. And um, so in this one, you see it with aunts, the relationship between fathers and sons, the relationship between bloodline, lineage, and fate, whether or not you're doomed because Thomas Sutpen is in your lineage or not, whether or not you're doomed because um, aunts is your father, right? Right. These whole, these, these things, then the relationship between your past and your present, these should have lots of echoes, like I said, to Marilyn Robinson. Mm, absolutely. Um, the more that I talk through Faulkner, the more that I just think she rips off Faulkner. I, I think we made that point that she kind of is just the Faulkner of the Midwest. I fell down a, a trap door in that episode, if you remember. So That's right. I, you don't remember any yeah. of this. You could go back and listen. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. And, and not, there's there's a, so, so many uh, This American Life since a little time. S-Town. 
S-Town, yeah. <laughs> listen to that. I have, I've been kind of tempted. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, so that's the broader picture of the South and what Faulkner was writing about. A lot of his novels end up dealing with, so a lot of his novels end up dealing with the very gothic and grotesque themes because of this. They're not always rooted in what we would consider to be reality. Their figures are very strange and um, dark. And if we ever do Flannery O'Connor, you'll see how she is heavily indebted to Faulkner. But how, not, not only that, I mean, Faulkner didn't create the Southern consciousness either. Faulkner was pulling from it. So, I mean, you see elements of this in Twain. You see a lot of elements of this in Steinbeck. Even though he wasn't a Southerner, he was definitely dealing with the relationship between the poor and the land. It's not a uniquely Faulkner-esque thing. What's uniquely Faulkner-esque is the way that he wrote about it. Yeah, and so then you get Azalea Dying, which is a novel about... This is for my dear wife. Your dear wife has asked that we provide a summary. And she's going to be frustrated, but this is really all the novel is about. It's about a family who's the, the matron of the family dies. And she has asked that she be buried in her family burial ground in Jefferson County, right? Or Jefferson City. Needless to say, it's not that far away, but far enough away for this poor family of um, the main cast is what? Ants, who is the father. Ants, uh, Dar- uh, it's uh, Cash is the oldest son. Darl is the... Darl. Dewey uh, Dale. Then you have, oh, Jewel. Jewel, yeah. Then you have Dewey Dale. Dewey Dale. And you have Vardaman. Mm-hmm. Vardaman, who saw what he can't say. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> And so then they all go on this misadventure to try and get the wife back. And along the way, they end up setting somebody's barn on fire. Um, well, Darl does. Right. <laughs> because he wants to burn his mother or something because he can't stand what's happening. Because it takes nine days to get there. The river floods. The bridges go um, out. They just they just have all the sort of worse luck. Cash is it Cash who breaks his leg? Yeah, falls right? off the barn or whatever. Yeah. Falls off the barn, and so then all these things just happen to this poor family. Yeah, it's just and by a... the time they get to the town, the body's stinking. Ants gets himself some new teeth. Dewey Dell tries to get an abortion but can't. Poor Dewey Dell. And uh, Darrow gets taken to jail, <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> You're welcome, man. (laughs) Darl is the one we find out who burned down that barn, and apparently is that's what Vardaman saw that he couldn't tell. That's the big uh, Shyamalan-like twist at the end. Jewel is kind of, I guess, who was the Cain figure in Cal? Cal. He's kind of the Cal of this. He wants to leave, but then he doesn't. Mm -hmm. He comes back, and he's the one that you think is troubled and is going to be the bad guy. But then it ends up, and Darl's the one that we get. Darl's actually the one that narrates most of this story for us. You think Darl's going to be the good sort of. He's certainly the most sensitive and emotionally intuitive. He's an interesting character, but he's the one who goes to jail and Jules, the one who comes home and anyways. Right. And so you get the interrelationships between the brothers and the fighting and the father and all this stuff that's happening. And And the dad dad gets a a new wife too. Yeah. Teeth and a wife. Teeth and a wife. Should have just named it that. Yeah. Teeth and a wife. wife. (laughs) So I missed the boat on that one. Faulkner. I'm going to postulate and I'm also going to use the word postulate. Okay. Yeah. You've already used it once. I used it. This is your second postulate. You get two per podcast. All right. Sweet. I am going to make a conjecture. I'm going to make a postulate. (laughs) I'm going to make a postulate that this is one of the few times where there was more to say in the context than there actually is about the novel. <laughs> that, that may be true. Hey, Brendan, I have a question about the uh, about William Faulkner that I forgot to ask. Yeah. How did he get the spelling of his name? Oh, uh, at first it was without the U. His family is F-A-L, like Peter Faulkner. Yeah. And he decided to add the U. Yes. Because I guess it was more dignified. You know whose voice I hear out there, don't you? 
Who? The pastor who's a master of reading. Oh, the the pastor who's a master of reading is right outside our door. Maybe he'll come in and join us, but he might be doing pastorly. He might be reading souls right so, now. It sounds like they're just talking. Yeah, I'm going to put this on the record that I think. Never mind. <laughs> I think I think Jake's scared to talk about this novel. Yeah, he should be. Maybe the Faulkner. Maybe Faulkner's the master of reading, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> because we all know that Jake is really Darl. Yeah. <laughs> He's sensitive, and there was that time he burned down the barn. There is, yeah. Jake just loves to burn down barns. <laughs> he just loves to burn down barns. But there's one thing that we can tell you about now that he's not in the room, folks. Jake loves burning down barns. Loves it. He just loves to see the see him go. Pastor is the master of reading. No, he's the pastor who's a master of barn burning. Yeah, he doesn't want us to tell anyone. This might be our only chance. <laughs> um, that's not true. Jake doesn't burn down barns. No. He burns down houses. what he gets for not being here yeah. um, okay we're really gonna have to talk about this book Today was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was performed by Nathan Alberson, Brandon Chasteen, and that's about it. Yep. You can go to warhornmedia.com for lots more great content uh, as creatively directed by Nathan Alberson and executively directed by, by Jake Menzel. Maybe that's what Jake's doing now. He's just, he's too good for us. He's, he's in his office, he's behind his mahogany desk, smoking a cigar. Out there, executive directing. Executive directing. You know, he's a he's a pastor. He's got souls to help and executive things to direct. Uh, he might not have time for the the little people. Maybe that's why he d- d- doesn't like as I lay dying because it's all about the common man, and he's not a common man anymore. He's not a common man at all. No, he's too good for the likes of us. Certainly, definitely. Well, Jake, we love you, and we hope you come back to us soon. We sit beneath the raindrops and. We know each one by name. We know each one by name. And we know your name. It's Jake. The pastor who is a master of reading. Of reading. And one day you'll come back to us. One day you'll come back to us, Jake. But not today. Not today. Sometimes we thought you would. But you didn't. It was just like, uh, yeah. You were just like teasing us. You were like the meaning of life. You seemed to be within our grasp. You seemed to be permanent, and then you faded into impermanence. And that's that. We were left feeling empty and alone in the universe. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Buddy. Pal. Chum. Chum. <laughs> uh, you can also go to Warhorn Media's Facebook page. Do it. 